Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the idea center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Shanti Kalathal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. So I'll start off today with a list of eye-popping items. A luxury yacht worth 120 million euros. Luxury cars including Maseratis, Ferraris, Aston Martins, and Bentleys. A Malibu pad with its own golf course, tennis court, and two swimming pools. And a private jet that'll set you back a cool 30 million. So what's the connection? They're all linked to Equatorial Guinea a small nation in Central Africa that's emblematic of a curious paradox. It ranks near the bottom of the Human Development Index, yet boasts the highest per capita income in Africa. In fact, the president of Equatorial Guinea, Teodoro Obiang, has ruled the oil-rich country since 1979, making him the second longest-serving ruler in the world. After vast oil reserves were discovered in the mid-1990s, the country was quickly flooded with oil revenue. On paper, Equatorial Guinea is one of the richest countries in Africa, but the majority of its citizens live in extreme poverty. Instead of investing oil revenue in the people, political elites pocketed the cash, sent it offshore, and invested it in places like Brazil, France, and the United States, the classic steal-stash-spend pattern of transnational kleptocracy. The impact of this theft inside Equatorial Guinea is obvious. While President Obiang's inner circle proudly flaunts its wealth on social media, average citizens struggle to survive. President Obiang and his network control all lovers of power, silencing dissent and committing human rights abuses in the process. Internal accountability mechanisms, such as the judiciary and media, are not allowed to act independently, leaving few options to counter kleptocracy from inside the country. In these cases, civil society activists have tried to match kleptocrats' globe-spanning tactics with their own efforts to work collaboratively across borders. In 2008, a coalition of Equato-Guinean civil society activists and international allies initiated a groundbreaking case of strategic litigation in France against President Obiang's son, Théodorin Obiang, for corruption-related offenses. Ultimately, after an 11-year effort, he was found guilty by the French courts earlier this year. And here to share with us how civil society can work creatively to draw attention to the corrupting influence of kleptocratic leaders and combat transnational kleptocracy we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast Tutu Alicante, Executive Director of EG Justice, for today's discussion, Countering Kleptocracy from the Inside Out. Welcome, Tutu. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Shanti. It's always a pleasure to be here. So, Tutu, let's start off with um, maybe you could talk a little bit about Equatorial Guinea. In its most recent report, Human Rights Watch raised concerns about human rights violations in the country, including repression of civil society groups and opposition politicians and so on. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the link between kleptocracy and the longevity of authoritarian rule in Equatorial Guinea. Yes. It is, it is at least in the case of Equatorial Guinea, it is clear that the government, the president that we have right now and the people that support him, have managed to stay thanks to the wealth of the nation, thanks to the natural resources, and thanks, unfortunately, to their ability to use all those resources just for self-enrichment. 
They have used those resources to ensure that they control the military. They have used those resources to ensure that there is no opposition. They have used those resources to ensure there is positive media about that regime, not just inside the country, but also regionally and abroad. They have used those resources to paint an image about Equatorial Guinea, about this presidency, including in places like in the New York Times and Washington Post and other places, that is not the reality that most people live in the country. You know, so there is no doubt that you know um, the ability of this government to force monopolize all the natural resources of the country and use those to portray an image internationally that, that does not keep with the reality has allowed it to continue to exist for 40 years now. Um, so issues of arbitrary detentions, issues of extrajudicial killing, torture, and other things that happen, very uh, egregious human rights violations that happen in Equatorial Guinea are not known outside Equatorial Guinea because of the control that this government has of the natural resources. It sounds like there's a very direct link between the repression inside the country and the sort of whitewashing of the image outside the country. Uh, without a doubt, Equatorial Guinea has always been a repressive nation, right? But in the Macias region, between, in the Macias uh, time, between 1968 and 1979, during that first period, those egregious human rights violations were known. There was a UN reporter especially um, in charge of Equatorial Guinea right, between 1968 and 1979. Obiang comes to power and Obiang, uh, and we discover oil, Obiang is the current president, and we discover oil, and all of a sudden the UN suppresses the mission of the special rapporteur for Equatorial Guinea. Uh, so there is no doubt that, you know, oil has allowed this government to get away with, literally get away with murder, get away with uh, repression of, of human rights. And you mentioned, too, too, essentially the authorities have taken these massive resources and repurposed them for a whole host of other aims. And the list you described is pretty extensive. It was media, finance, PR support, um, influencing international organizations. Can you say a little bit more about how a government that creates its own rules at home tries to do this sort of thing beyond its borders? I mean, I think that is uh, the beauty or perhaps the evil of uh, kleptocracy, right? In that, uh, first of all, the U uh, Equatorial Guinea is a very small country. Um, and even if it was a big country, I mean, I think when you steal the type of resources that uh, this government is allowed to steal, you need some way to spend that money. Um, there are no dealerships in Equatorial Guinea where you can buy Maseratis and Lamborghinis and that sort of thing. So you end up having almost necessarily, you know, having to go to France, having to go to the U.S. and other places. You know, there's no, the type of mansions that you find in Malibu, you don't find in Equatorial Guinea. So you end up having to go elsewhere to spend that money. Unfortunately, you know, um, those governments do not work alone, right? You need someone that's going to facilitate monies they are stolen in a place like Equatorial Guinea, ending up in Paris, ending up in the U.S., or ending up in London and elsewhere. You need lawyers, you need accountants, you need a host, host of uh, enablers that ensure that, you know, all these wheels are, are operating. Um, you need people that are going to advise you on basically, you know, how to become a better kleptocrat, you know, how to avoid detection by law enforcement, whether in the U.S. or in France or in wherever, how to ensure... Um, um, that the citizens of your country are unaware of the uh, egregiousness of that of that uh, 
stealing of that kleptocracy. You know, so um, unfortunately, you know, the machinery of people that help kleptocrats do their work is so huge that I don't know. We're facing a an uphill battle, a veritable uphill battle. And in in many ways, I think what we've um, come across in discussions on this topic with others who are trying to combat it is that you really face a challenge in the sense that in Equatorial Guinea, where these massive resources are available to the authorities who monopolize political and economic power at home, it's actually quite difficult at the local level to make inroads to provide any checks on that behavior, that um, misbehavior. And you have some experience and you've um, worked on initiatives that try to use the external mechanisms of rule of law in some of the places where the kleptocrats are operating, in this case, Equatorial Guinea, but I think this concept can apply in other areas. Can you say a word about what is important in trying to make a dent in kleptocracy from the outside looking in? What sorts of things should we understand in order for that to be effective? So initially, to your point about the challenge of holding these governments accountable, I mean, Equatorial Guinea you know, is a place in which the president, basically the president himself, controls the judiciary, right? He's the first mag- magistrate of the nation, and he himself appoints every single lawmaker. You know, So holding kleptocrats accountable in a place like Equatorial Guinea or in a place like uh, Congo Brazzaville or Chad or any of these uh, tightly controlled countries, you know, is impossible. Um and, and, and for me, you know, that is the beauty of a case like the Biemalaki case, right? Or the possibility of, you know, coming to the U.S., a rule of no nation, and using the court system here to go after the assets of these kleptocrats. In terms of, you know, what, what is important, I mean, I think there are many things that are important. I mean, we have to identify those assets in wherever they are, whether they're here in the U.S., you know, we have to... If they're here in the U.S., for instance, you know, you need someone that can tell you, look, in Potomac, there are two mansions over there that belong to the president. And in these mansions, we know there are two or three Lamborghinis and you need all that that information. In the BMLAKI case, you know, we, there was a report put out by uh, Ter Solidaire that spelled out all these different mansions and cars and yachts and things and luxury items owned by the Obiangs and the Bia, Paul Bia family and the Obongo family and the Sassongeso family and all these other uh, dozens of African states, right? So you need someone that's going to do that research, you know, whether they're journalists, investigative journalists, or whether they're just citizens from those countries affected. Then you need a host, host of uh, 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 journalists and other people. They're able to put that information in the news, in the news mechanism, you know, people need to know about these egregious uh, violations. You need lawyers, you know, people that can then begin to think, okay, what are the laws in this country that allow citizens of that country to hold this government accountable for the resources they have taken out of the country and transfer elsewhere? You need lawyers that understand, okay, do who has. Um, the legal capacity, who has jurisdiction to go after these assets, you know, what laws do you use? You need uh, people that know the political system, you know, one of the difficulties in uh, going after some of these dictators, you know, these uh, strong relationships that exist between these dictators and presidents or and institutions, business enterprises, for instance, ExxonMobil and others, with these governments. So you need people that understand, you know, how to undo the damage that lobbying firms and oil companies and politicians in other places 
are spending years and years, you know, tying up. So you need a host of things. You know, but I think the critical thing for me is having a network of people that are committed to the fight that it takes. You know, this is a fight that is, you have to address it as, you know, the marathon, not the sprint, you know, and so you need people that are committed to ensuring that, okay, at any given point, we are gonna need different types of resources and different types of intelligence to work and to fight uh, against these kleptocrats, you know. In the Malaki case, as you all very well know, that case went on for about 10 years. And what started as just a Sherpa and Transparency International friends going after uh, these assets turned into you know, a group of Equatoguineans, EG Justice and many other Equatoguineans that we were able to bring on board going after it. And it turned into also bringing uh, Human Rights Watch and uh, the Open Society Justice Initiative and many other organizations to join forces and all of us from different uh, points of strength, figuring out how we can, first of all, paint an image of what is going on in Equatorial Guinea, what damage this kleptocracy is doing, and the benefits of having a government or rather a judicial system addressing this issue, right? And even after you get to that point, you know, you still then need to start thinking about, okay, we, should we be able to recover all these assets? How do you ensure that these assets do not end up where they come back from? How do you ensure that these assets do not stay in France or in the U.S.? You know, how do you ensure that this asset can benefit the victims in the country where this asset was stolen from? You know, so there you start thinking about, okay, uh, do we have laws in place that, sh- that ensure asset repatriation? And if not, who should we be? What lawmakers or what other institutions or organizations should we be working with to convince our lawmakers and our society that this money should not stay in the French uh, national treasury, but rather should go back to ensure that there is education and healthcare in Ecuador again? So that network of organizations that should come together is critical. You know, it's interesting because I think frequently when we think about ways to combat transnational kleptocracy, the attention naturally focuses on law enforcement. And indeed, all those uh, those fancy cars that I mentioned at the beginning were all things that were seized by law enforcement. But what you're describing is something that's a much more comprehensive, civil society inclusive type of approach. And I was wondering, you know, if you've argued that local populations and diaspora populations can and should play a role in these types of investigations and in this type of exposure. Could you talk a little bit more about the specific things that diaspora groups and also maybe even local civil society, as constrained as they are within the countries, is there a role for them as well? Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, Teodoro Biang in Ecuador, Guinea, Sasson Gesson and others have been very successful at doing is painting these cases, you know, the Biemalaki case or the assets forfeiture case that the U.S. Department of Justice had against the assets of uh, Theodorin in the U.S. or the recent seizure of cars in Switzerland. The, the, the president in our countries have been able to, I won't say successfully, but or skillfully paint these as um, neo-colonial um, intentions whether by Transparency International Friends or by uh, Open Society Justice Initiative or even by EG Justice to control, to continue to control their country, right? They they ask, Theodorin would ask, Theodorin in Ecuador, there's no free press, but he has a radio station. 
uh, and he would ask, you know, what? Why should French allow or tell us how we should be spending our money? Why do French care how we spend? We Africans spend our money. So they've been able to change people's mind. You know, they've been able to make this at least for the. Uh, Average Equatorian into a, f- a, a fight between France, who wants to continue to dominate Equatorian, or the U.S. Who wants to continue to tell Africans what to do, instead of, of being able to focus on the reality, you know, which is that millions and millions of money that should benefit average Equatorians are being absconded, being stolen by one person to buy cars and yachts, right? So they'll be able to do that. I think. The way to change that narrative that our presidents are are pushing out there is to ensure that you know people in our country understand the fight. People in our country are involved in that fight from the beginning, right? So for me, you know, it's critical then to think about okay, from the beginning, how do we ensure that people in our communities understand that corruption is not cool, that the Lamborghinis and yachts and stuff do not make you the cooler kid on the block, that. What is cool is spending what is right. So I think what where we should be focusing our energies on, and this is what I've advocated in the paper, is ensuring that from the beginning of these cases, we are devoting the right resources, enough resources, to educating people in the communities about the damage that kleptocracy does to our communities, right? If people understand that, then they understand that what Theodorini is doing is wrong. They begin to understand that that Lamborghini should not belong to Theodorini, it should belong to us. They begin to understand, you know, before you even tell them that, you know, asset repatriation should be about ensuring that those monies come back to our community and not stay in France, you know. So involving them from the beginning through media, if you have media, through campaigns in social media, through... In the case of Equatorial Guinea, we even use a comic book to educate people about this. So th- whatever resources you have to engage people from the beginning, it seems to me, are critical and should be used, right? People in the diaspora have the added advantage of having even more resources and the time to engage in the fighting ways that people are inside Malabo or Bata, these are present in Equatorial Guinea, do not, right? Social media is more readily available to someone in Madrid from Equatorial Guinea or someone in the U.S. Um, than someone in Malabo. And someone in Madrid, someone in Malabo can go to events, can go to protests, can do things, you know, that ensure that, you know, the international community know that, you know, we are not going to stand idly by why our, our government, our elected official in some cases, in most cases, selected officials, uh, continue to squander the resources of our nations. And it may be that some of the diaspora members may be most attuned to some of the ways that abuses are taking place and can say, oh, actually, I know which mansion it is, and I can point that out, and maybe that might help even alert that to law enforcement in respective locations as well. Yeah, and we know in the case of the Bia Malabiki case, you know, it was diaspora people, it was Congolese and Gabonese and Cameroonians living in Paris who work with Terre Solidaire to identify. In fact, they started the process of identifying all these resources in Paris, in Belgium, and elsewhere. You know, so they are critical. In the work that we're doing right now in EG, with EG Justice, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is get young Equatorians, they're living in the U.S., they know who the kids of you know, people in government are, to tell us, okay, we know that the son of the Minister of Justice 
is in Houston, or the son of such and such general is in Atlanta. And we follow them on Facebook and we can see all the Lexus, uh, all the pictures of Lexus and Lamborghinis that they're posting and identifying those and then figuring out, you know, through social media and other ways, how we can begin to shame these kids. While those of us that have uh, the legal training can figure out how we can go after those assets legally. And in a way, what you've described is this very important feature of helping uh, local populations in the countries that suffer the most from this, where the resources are taken out by leaders with unchecked power. But in an era of globalization, I think what we're discovering is this is really two sides of the same coin because the corrosive and corrupting impact of kleptocracy finds its way into open societies where you can find the mansions, you can find the cars, you can find the opportunities essentially to enjoy the benefits of a rule of law environment um, and stash your ill-gotten gains in these places. What else in your view do we need to do that we haven't done to date to help open societies writ large, whether we're talking about North America or uh, parts of Europe, um, to better put this in perspective and to understand why it's important for them as well. So I, I, a couple of things come to mind, right? One, I think we need to figure out how we bring a more foundations, more people with resources to understand how damaging kleptocracy is, right? There are many organizations out there supporting and funding human rights, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, Ford Foundation and MacArthur Foundation. I think you could invest a lot of money in fixing Kibera or impoverished neighborhoods in Nairobi or in Ghana or in Equatorial Guinea in other place. You could also invest resources in holding government uh, officials in those countries accountable in the U.S. and in other places that ensure that, you know, then those monies that should have gone to these neighborhoods in Africa go there, right? We do not have, in my opinion, enough foundations, enough funders paying attention to the holistic damage that kleptocracy does in our countries. We should be demanding more from the European Union, from the USAID and others, and the World Bank and IMF that gives money to these countries. Equatorial Guinea, as you know, is a very kleptocratic country. I don't think there is any way to explain why the IMF is about to loan $700 million to Equatorial Guinea, right? What foundations, and there are several foundations that pay attention to what the IMF and World Bank are doing. What foundation is right now speaking about that, right? The EG Justice, as you you probably already know this. I'm not telling anything new. It's a very small organization. I do not have the resources to move IMF away from that loan. There are organizations over here for the open society others. They have the gravitas, the power to get IMF to rethink this, right? So we need more big fish organizations and foundations and funders and people thinking about this, right? So for me, that's one. The other one that comes to mind right away, you know, is enablers. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that these kleptocrats work with a network of accountants, lawyers, escrow agents, and many other people that facilitate that, right? Many of these third-party agents that help set up all these uh, shadow companies are in Delaware or in Reno, Nevada, somewhere in the U.S. or somewhere in Europe and stuff. We need more 
resources going towards holding some of these uh, enablers accountable. You know, there are gatekeepers out there, or there are people out there ensuring that, you know, this cryptography continues, including lobbying firms here in Washington, D.C., that we need to figure out how we go after them, you know, and for me, you know, that's the next stage of the fight. Not for justice because we don't have the resources, but certainly, I mean, for those institutions that do have the resources, I think we need to figure out how we go after these kleptocrats. Part of that is telling the whole story of kleptocracy and, and showing that it's not just something that happens far away if you're in the U.S. or far away if you're in Western Europe, but it's something that's actually a global network. And so inevitably, you're impacted in one way or another, whether it's through increased housing prices or or some other reason. I mean, I think you see this in London and other places quite, quite strikingly. So maybe that story needs to be told more effectively so people don't just see it as a problem that doesn't affect them if they're not living in those countries. That's uh, correct. So before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respecting reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. So Tutu, would you like to go first? Sure. For the last several months, I've been working on uh, bringing an exhibit to UNC where I live. I live in Chapel Hill, and the uh, University of North Carolina has been gracious enough to accept having an exhibit about Equatorial Guinea. So we have an artist in town now who is a comic artist who was in prison for many, many uh, months. He was there for six months. We managed to get him out thanks to a huge international campaign and he's out. So now he's ha- we have his work. As a result of that, you know, we're bringing Equator Guineans, we bring a former ambassador, U.S. ambassador who was in Equatorial Guinea, Marcus Kino. And one of the people that I'm very excited is coming is Melibea Obono, Trifonia Melibea Obono. She's a journalist, she's a political scientist and sociologist, and is currently working on a doctorate in gender studies. Trifonia Melibea is also the only activist in Equatorial Guinea paying attention to LGBTQ rights issues. She, in fact, this week just presented her fifth book on these topics. I'm reading her book, La Bastarda, which is the first book translated into English written by a woman from Equatorial Guinea. It's a book that covers many issues that I think are critical uh, for human rights activists like myself, uh, gender issues. Um, she's challenging issues of, of notions of you know polygamy and other things that our traditions hold dear. Um, and asking questions about, you know, what what is a government willing to do in terms of equality for people of the LGBTQ community in Equatorial Guinea? Uh, so that's what I'm reading. I highly recommend it. Wonderful. Thank you. And Chris? And I'm reading a report that was released this summer produced by Clay Fuller on the topic we've been discussing today. The title of this report is Dismantling the Authoritarian Corruption Nexus. And in the report, he describes uh, just how pernicious this nexus is and how authoritarian regimes essentially survive and operate by virtue of these kleptocratic-like practices, many of which track the sorts of things we heard uh, Tutu describe today. And he argues in the report that this sort of kleptocracy is critical to reinforcing the strength and survival of authoritarian systems of governance everywhere. His response to this is to look to democracy as a response, and he lays out a host of what I would describe as um, systematically rule-of-law-based approaches coming from the democracies, relying on their key laws, strengthening them as a way of uh, repelling and rolling back the kind of kleptocracy that has um, 
started to grow roots globally in this era of globalization. And I'm reading a report that came out from Global Witness last month called Sasso Nguesso's Laundromat, a Congolese state affair, describes how relatives of the Republic of Congo's president, Denis Sasso Nguesso, have allegedly been part of the theft of Congo's resources in an elaborate money laundering scheme. And all of that points to how weaknesses in the international anti-money laundering framework has facilitated transnational kleptocracy. So the report notes that the Republic of Congo has recently become sub-Saharan Africa's third biggest oil producer, and it collects huge revenues, yet, as is the case with Equatorial Guinea, uh, it consistently performs poorly on indices such as the Human Development Index and so on. And, of course, uh, much of the population lives below the poverty line. So the report also talks about how top officials and their relatives, again, striking similarities with Equatorial Guinea, appear to live very well-documented, lavish lifestyles that are not compatible with public officials' modest salaries. And I think part of what all of this helps to show, you know, both what you've talked about, Tutu, and some of what's in this report, and, you know, some of what we see of the the sort of images of mansions and yachts and rock star lifestyles and shell companies and those sorts of things, they tend to obscure the real harm that's being done in these countries as a result of kleptocracy. And in particular, how the ordinary people of Congo, in this case of this report, or the people of Equatorial Guinea are are impoverished and repressed by the mechanics of kleptocracy and are, as you say, the real victims of this. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Tutu Alicante again for being our guest. Thank you very much. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on this topic, we recommend reading Tutu Alicante's report published here at the International Forum titled To Catch a Kleptocrat, Lessons Learned from the Bien Malachi Trials in France. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, guest producer Melissa Ayton, and our editing and sound engineer Rochelle Faust, with additional support by Jessica Ludwig. I'm Chris Walker with Shanti Kalafil and Tutu Alicante. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on countering kleptocracy from the inside out and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.